Our first scripture reading this morning comes from Proverbs 28, verses 13 and 14. Hear now the word of the Lord. He who conceals his sins does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Blessed is the man who always fears the Lord, but he who hardens his heart falls into trouble. Our second scripture reading this morning comes from the book of 2 Chronicles, chapter 30, verses 6 through 9. Hear now the word of the Lord. At the king's command, couriers went throughout Israel and Judah with letters from the king and from his officials, which read, People of Israel, return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that he may return to you who are left, who have escaped from the hand of the kings of Assyria. Do not be like your parents and your fellow Israelites who were unfaithful to the Lord, the God of their ancestors, so that he made them an object of horror, as you see. Do not be stiff-necked as your ancestors were. Submit to the Lord. Come to his sanctuary, which he has consecrated forever. Serve the Lord your God so that his fierce anger will turn away from you. If you return to the Lord, then your fellow Israelites and your children will be shown compassion by their captors and will return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and compassionate. He will not turn his face from you if you return to him. Now, repentance is one of those words that has a lot of baggage for some people. It can call up ideas of guilt and shame, of dwelling on past mistakes and failures, of negativity that crushes your self-esteem and destroys your hope. It can bring to mind people quick to point out flaws and give truly harsh criticisms. Even some people within the church shudder when they hear the word repentance come up in a sermon because they start to think it's going to be one of those kinds of Sundays. There's often this dichotomy drawn between repentance and grace, as though the two can't exist at the same time, let alone be emphasized at the same time. And it's true that there are churches and theologians out there who will dwell on one or the other in such a way that it seems to be the only description of God. Either you believe in a God of judgment who commands you to change your ways, or you believe in a God of grace who accepts you without asking anything. Either you're condemned if you don't repent, or you're saved no matter what. But in truth, repentance and grace are inseparable, bound together within our lives by the God who wants us to fully live. This morning, Scripture says it like this, God will not turn his face from you if you return to him. There's a great deal of mercy extended in this simple phrase with Forgiveness and a second chance offered to the people who had already turned their backs on God countless times. The audience here is keenly aware that there are consequences that come with turning away like they have. They knew the immediate consequences, the defeats and humiliations and enslavements. But they also knew that rebellion against God carried eternal consequences as well. But here's the thing. God does not rejoice in condemnation. No, God doesn't rejoice in condemnation, but in salvation instead. His desire for us, for his creation, his desire for the people of Israel, is that we be reconciled to him and restored to what was intended. 
The people of Israel knew the reality of God, and still they violated his commandments. But God was not satisfied with giving them the punishment that they'd earned with their actions. Now, it's clear that he wanted them to return to him, which is why rather than simply delivering punishment, he offered an option. He offered an opportunity for them. The very fact that we are offered the opportunity for repentance is itself, in many ways, a demonstration of grace and mercy. We admit it in our communion liturgy when we say, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have failed to be an obedient church. We have not done your will, have broken your law, rebelled against your love, not loved our neighbors, and have not heard the cry of the needy. As we discussed last week, Lent is a time for us to drop all pretense and acknowledge that we, that you and I, have personally sinned against our Lord. When we make this confession, and when we confess our sins outside of our church liturgy, it must be with sincerity and conviction. We're supposed to offer up our own hearts and penance. And as a confessing people, we have to remember that part of the gospel is that we're not trapped by where we've come from or how we've lived before. Christ can and will make all people new who come and seek his mercy. So you've done some bad things before, maybe a lot of them. So you've engaged in all sorts of vices and indulged for your whole life. What does it matter when offered at the foot of the cross, when we offer that up before Christ, what can that do to hold us against his power? The good news of Jesus tells us that by the grace of God, you can turn away from all of that, from everything that you've done and be born again without the burden of any of it. Hear that again, just because you've done something before, even if you've done it for a long time or many times, does not mean that you can't escape it. With Christ, you can escape all of those old things because with Christ, you can be made new. This is also true for longer standing paths. Our scripture this morning says, Do not be like your parents and your fellow Israelites who are unfaithful to the Lord, the God of their ancestors. There's an old song, pretty good song, if I say so, by Hank Williams Jr. called Family Tradition, meant as a bit of a musical rebellion against his father's style and against the expectations for the way that he should live, drinking, drugs, and country music. Behind that rebellion, though, there was this cynical sort of recognition that, in many ways, he was following in his father's footsteps. His father, Hank Williams, died at age 29 from the effects of alcohol and drug abuse. Hard living was a family tradition, after all, so could anybody blame the younger Hank? Would anybody expect anything different? We could apply the same logic to the Israelites here, too, though perhaps with less country music and more idol worship. From generation to generation, the people of Israel heard and ignored the call of the Lord to return to him. Ever since that first moment when they made a golden calf as Moses was receiving the Ten Commandments. In many ways, it was a family tradition of their own. They would allow other religions and kingdoms to influence them, to draw them away from their God who delivered them in favor of something new. 
Just read the Old Testament. This is what every prophet warned against, what every hero resisted. But just as a person's history doesn't prevent them from returning to God, neither can the history of their families or even the histories of their people. God is gracious and kind, and no family tradition is strong enough to overcome his goodness. We are called to return to God, and we are assured that with his help, we can overcome any habits, any patterns or temptations, even if they seem insurmountable to us. So it's possible no matter what to return or to turn from our pasts and return to God. But knowing where we're coming from isn't quite enough. This isn't just about where we're coming from. It's also about where we're going. What is it that we're called to do? Who is it that we're called to be as we make this great return? The short answer is we're called to serve the kingdom of God. Our scripture tells us, come to his sanctuary which he has consecrated forever. God has always invited his people to be set apart, to begin a life where they walk with him in a personal way and participate in the work that he's doing all around us. In the Old Testament, when people wanted to be with God, they would go to a special and specific place set apart so that they could encounter his presence. It was first the tabernacle, a portable temple tent where the Ark of the Covenant was stored while the Israelites wandered for all those years. After they settled and formed their kingdom, kingdom, God's sanctuary was in the temple, a magnificent and large place where only the priests could go and only the pure could go near. It was destroyed and then rebuilt into the second temple, this time even larger and more impressive than before. And God was known to reside in the holiest of holies, which was an area behind a massive veil, behind a piece of fabric that was four inches thick. The same veil that was torn in two when Jesus died centuries later. But that temple too was destroyed, which leaves us to wonder and to ask, where the eternally consecrated sanctuary is now. Well, we as followers of Christ know that God's grace was not destroyed with the temple, nor was his mercy lost with the ark. The temple may have been destroyed, but Jesus gave us something so much greater. He gave us the church. By the time Roman soldiers sacked Jerusalem, the church had been carried by Peter, Paul, and others into Rome and throughout Europe, into Asia by Thomas, and into Africa by a eunuch who encountered the disciples and by other apostles. By the time they'd finished destroying that second temple, the consecrated sanctuary could be found and experienced all across the ancient world, in homes and communities as people shared the good news of Jesus, and as they learned to share bread and wine in remembrance of him. People and families from all walks of life, rich and poor, landowners and slaves, men and women, all were baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and told that they had been born again into glorious new life. That same news is what we proclaim today. His church is his holy sanctuary, and you, all of us, are its priests. 
To say that returning to God means coming to His sanctuary is to say that we must be a part of His holy church. Now, we have to be careful with this, though, because we know that church with a capital C doesn't necessarily just mean this local church or the United Methodist Church or even the American church at all. Every level is a part of that universal church, of course, but none encapsulates it. It's said that the only holiness is social holiness because Jesus himself created a system in which his followers were meant to support and edify each other. But if you read scripture, it becomes clear very quickly that this is kind of a messy thing. One of my favorite moments in the Gospels in which the humanity of the disciples really shines through is in the Gospel of John chapter 20 when Mary Magdalene tells John and Peter that Jesus isn't in his tomb anymore. I love this passage because John, the author, takes a moment to point out that as the two ran to the tomb to see for themselves, Peter fell behind because John was a little bit faster. John is also the only gospel writer who notes that Peter was the one who cut a man's ear off when Jesus was arrested. Clearly, these two had a bit of a rivalry going between them. We see this throughout the New Testament, that the disciples and apostles have a complex, sometimes tense relationship with one another, like Paul and Barnabas parting ways over an argument, or that time that the apostles got into a fight about who was the greatest among them. But you know what? In spite of their humanity, I would be willing to bet that each of those people regardless of how much they'd been fighting or arguing, each of them thanked God for the work that the others were doing and that they got to do that work alongside of them. They worshipped together. They prayed together. And sometimes they traveled together too. And it was all because they knew that the church was bigger than any one of them. Within that sanctuary of believers, each of them could find peace and grace, and mercy. And it's within that same sanctuary of believers, within God's holy church, that we can find support today. When we turn from our old ways and return to the sanctuary of God's church, we can find mercy beyond what we can imagine. This morning, Scripture says that if you return to the Lord, then His fierce anger will turn away from you. Now, this is the kind of harsh talk you might expect from one of those repentance sermons I mentioned before. But set aside your expectations for that for a moment. I said at the beginning of this that we know that we violated God's will and that we can avoid condemnation if we return to Him. And that's true, but it's not the whole story. It doesn't end with that. Not only is God's fierce anger turned away from you when you return to Him, not only do you avoid the consequences of your sin, but you are given new and abundant life in its place. You're given new life in Jesus Christ, and you're given a place within within the sanctuary of His holy church and amongst all of the believers who've gone before and who go alongside you now, all around the world. Returning to God, coming to the sanctuary of His church, and experiencing that new life in Christ are all a part of what we find when we serve the kingdom of God. 
But as I said, we're called to be more than that. We're called to do more than just receive. We're called to be active participants in the work that God is doing throughout the world. The promises in this morning's scriptures aren't limited to the person who returns, but they go so much farther than that. They're extended to the neighbors and their children as well. When a life is changed by God, it sends out ripples that impact whole families and whole communities. A person who's experienced that kind of mercy will, seeing that the people around them are still in need, naturally want to bring them back to God so that they too can experience renewal, so that they can experience the fullness of life that can be found there. They've found the source of living water and the people all around them are dying of thirst. Why wouldn't they lead their neighbors back to it? But a proclamation like that isn't convincing by itself, nor should it stand alone. A person proclaiming change should show that they themselves have been changed. In proclaiming a compassionate, loving God, they should be compassionate and loving to all of the people around them and everything that they do at every moment that they go. So no matter where you stand today, turn back to God and pursue His love Know that you stand within his eternal and universal church that stretches throughout time and all around the world and that there are countless Christians who stand with you. Carry the good news with you wherever you go and as you do, you will see the face of God more clearly with every passing day. Thanks be to God. Amen.